Welcome to Future Building Podcast. I'm Matthew Aitchison, Professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC. As CEO of General Electric, Jeff Immelt spent 16 years at the helm of one of the world's largest and most well-known companies. Recently, Jeff published a book reflecting on this period, appropriately titled Hot Seat. Hot Seat is a story of modernization and perseverance. It's framed by questions of leadership and packed with amazing stories from the heights of international business during one of the most turbulent and rapidly evolving times in history. In this conversation, Bill Rue, CEO of Lendlease Digital and board member of Building 4.0 CRC, interviews Jeff. It's not the first time the two have met. Jeff selected Bill in 2011 to run GE Digital, which was set up to digitise GE's businesses and to enable the industrial giant to harness emerging technologies. In the following conversation, Jeff and Bill touch on many topics of great interest, from the importance of R&D to leadership in business, and on to a frank discussion around the current state of business. Finally, they speak about what's on the horizon, AI and machine learning, labour participation and shortages, rising digital literacy, and how the most valuable companies today understand the right balance between digital and physical. This conversation is proudly brought to you by Building 4.0 CRC. Well, hi, Jeff. It's, uh, it's certainly great to, uh, to have you as part of this fireside chat. Hey, Bill, it's so great to see you again. Uh, I loved working with you, so it's great to be even virtually uh, uh, sharing, the let's say, the stage with you. I think, as you're aware, a lot of our attendees are in innovation and research and um, the work you've done in innovation and research has been uh, has really been fantastic over your entire career. I think you know jumping right into this and focusing on the innovation part of it. You know when when you look at your your book Hot Seat, what struck me in reading the book is just how much emphasis uh, you put into innovation and research when you uh, took over as the CEO of, uh, of GE. Why don't you talk about why that emphasis and some of the successes that came out of that effort? You know, Bill, I, I spent my career kind of growing up inside the company and, and I was always a, what I would call a product person. I always liked technology and innovation. And even though, you know, kind of the era that I, you know, kind of rose my, my career in GE was more of a, process innovation, things like Six Sigma and Lean, I always felt like products were the key. Technology was the key. I think every every business leader and every company understands the science of winning in their industry. And in the businesses we were in, whether it was aviation or energy or healthcare, I, I could go down the list, having the best products always was immensely uh, powerful products and services and things that solve problems, uh, you know, for customers and things like that. So that was always what was in the back of my mind. I was always willing to invest in it. I, I was always willing to take risks on new products and new technologies. And I just found that that was the key to market share, customer satisfaction, and everything else. Uh, you know, Bill, when I became uh, CEO of GE, you know, 80% of the profits of our power business was selling one product in one market, uh, big gas turbines in the U.S. 
And you look at that and say, that's just unstable. That's not sustainable. That's not, you know, it's not positive. It's not powerful. And by, uh, you know, the time that the decade went by, by 2010, you know, that one product in one market was 10% of our earnings. And the other 90% was almost a dozen products, each one of which had at least $500 million of revenue. So being able to fund innovation, being able to fund technology and and having lots of products, I just think is the key to success. And, And I think many times, particularly in legacy businesses, uh, people don't spend enough time on that. You know, I, I, again, just to, I won't be too long when it just one last vignette. You know, if, if you think about Tesla and Elon Musk, look, it's an electric vehicle, right? That's key. But I think what he knew was that an electric vehicle didn't have to be a crappy car, right? When, when he came out with the Tesla, all the other electric vehicles were horrible, right? And so you think about, you know, the, the success of Tesla really... More than being kind of a climate changing innovation, it was just a great car, right? And and I think that's where legacy industry people fall down. They they don't spend enough on innovation. They don't value technology. You know, I I think one of the things and reminding you that a lot of our uh, a lot of the folks attending this are coming from our uh, research efforts, the Building Four research effort here in Australia, and it. It is really unique in that it's uh, it's driven by researchers, primarily out of universities, and businesses participating together. And there's a lot of tension between the two, right? Because one thinks very differently than the other. And you live this. I mean, you invested in the Global Research Center, and you were able to get a lot of leverage out of the Research Center. But how did you deal with that tension? And how do you think about that between the research community and the businesses? And what do you got to do to make those things work together? You know, there's a, there's, there's a healthy tension, Bill, and time horizon that always uh, matters. And, and I think that's a good thing, right? I think it's good that some people are looking over the horizon and it's good that some people are worried about making quarterly earnings and it takes everybody to make a difference. I, I think what I tried to do was was two things. One was look for you know technologies that could span the entire company. Um, we did, you know, it took a decade to develop what was called a ceramic matrix composite this had the strength of titanium, but was a fraction of the weight, and it could go into jet engines, and it could, it could improve fuel performance and weight by 1% or 2%, and that's worth billions to airlines. Now, that took 15 years to bring to market. We had to invent the product, we had to invent the process, and everywhere in between, but that's what it took to win, right? That's what it took to be successful. So on one hand, you have to take a look at technologies that benefit the entire company and make sure those are funded. Who think that like magic dust and, and uh, you know, just a little bit of financial engineering gets you to the finish line. And it really doesn't, right? So I think, I think it's really important that people take a few bets that are, that are out over the horizon and, and make sure that those are uh, uh, being invested in and coming to the fore. And I don't see enough of that. Uh, I don't see enough coming from business schools. And, and I just think that's something that uh, the next generation is going to value. So I'm taken with your comment about Elon Musk. And 
it, it, in, in reading about his story and Tesla, it's amazing. It, it did take like 10 years for that to become successful. And there was no guarantee in there if you just read about yeah. some of the challenges. So is there something magic about you got to be in it for that 10 to 15 years? How do things take time? You know, yeah, I'm sorry, Bill, but Bezos, Bezos one time said to me that valuable things are hard, right? And, and you know, this was probably in the early 2000s. And he was his CFO was a guy named Tom Skutak, who was my CFO at GE when I was in GE Plastics. And so we got to know each other reasonably well because Tommy was a friend of mine, right? And so Jeff and I were having dinner in Seattle. And, and I was talking about like all the money he was losing and negative cash flow and all this other stuff. And he just said, you know, Jeff, look, valuable things are hard. If, if everything could be your jet engine business, you know, we would have a really valuable world. And, and that's exactly the way you have to look at it, Bill, is that, is that it takes time to really kind of build things of value. And, and that's what people have to be in it for. Well, and then, you know, Elon Musk, uh, startup. Bezos startup, you know, can the, can the, let's take the car companies, you know, or take any industry you want. Can big companies really win or is it, this is really this innovation, is it really a small company game to go in? And what are your thoughts on all that? You know, it's a, it's a great, it's a great uh, question. You and I lived it to a certain extent together, you know, and have the scars to show for it. I, I would say there's really a value in scale and there's a value in innovation and scale. Uh, you know, I was running our healthcare business in the late nineties and we decided to launch uh, an ultrasound business. We were big in MRs and CTs, but it was clear that ultrasound was gonna be a growth uh, modality. So we, we actually recruited Omar Ishrak, who you know, who ended up running Medtronix, but he spent 15 years plus in GE and we basically built an ultrasound business at, from scratch inside a big company that over, let's say, a decade or 15 years became number one, became a $4 billion high margin business because we could leverage all of our capability and all of our technology. Uh, we, we gave it room to grow. So I think, you know, when you can make scale work for you, I think it really uh, matters and you can make you can get it done in big companies. I think the challenge, Bill, is, you know, knowing, and you, again, you and I live this, knowing what to do is not always that hard and knowing how to do it is not that hard, but knowing when to do it, uh, you know, having a sense of timing. And I would say, if you look at GM, if Mary Barra had gone all in an electric vehicle in 2010, she would have gotten fired, right? She, she had no capability to do what Elon Musk did. Her investors wouldn't let her. Her company wouldn't let her. Her board wouldn't let her. But she waited 10 years. She did some partnerships. And now GM is, you know, launching vehicles in the next five or 10 years. And they'll have a good position. So I think sometimes, you know, knowing when to do things or how, if you're a legacy company, knowing how to stay on the dance floor through partnerships or other things you know, so that you're there for the long term is really a, an art form. And something when I see legacy companies here in the Valley, something I try to coach them on. Yeah, in many ways, the legacy startups of yesterday, they have the same problems of any big company, because once you become a big company, 
that bureaucracy kicks in. It's hard to stay that innovator through it. it, it you've you've looked at Amazon. They seem to stay an innovator, uh, you know, through it. it. Do you think there's something special they do, or? Yeah, no, I think there's something. There's something culturally at Amazon that's worked where they're able to break things down into small components, and and they're able to give people enough leeway so that even though they're a huge company. They're able to give people enough leeway to kind of do experimentation and kind of run. And I, I think that's, I think to your point, Bill, they may be the best example of kind of a scale-based company that can still innovate, right? And, and, and that's, uh, that's really important. But it's, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, if you're, if you're Boeing, you should be launching rockets right now, just like SpaceX. And I think I think sometimes we we give up our turf for no reason, right? There's no reason why uh, you know Blue Origin and SpaceX have to be the only kind of modern rocket companies. You know, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed and Boeing ought to be in that play. So I think some of it's just intellectual laziness. And some of it is the fact that it is hard to get things done sometimes in big companies. Yeah. And in your book, um, you talk about three kinds of innovation, vertical, horizontal, exponential innovation. Uh, I was really taken by this because we did live through all that. But why, why do you break it up like that? Or how do you think about it in those categories? I think it's, you know, it's, it's kind of the way the world works and and particularly when you're in a conglomerate these are the things you've got to be thinking of when i when i say vertical innovation it's making a more fuel efficient let's say jet engine than rolls royce or pratt whitney right that's vertical that's in an industry that's innovative gains you market share uh things like that you, you know when i when i talk about horizontal innovation it's a it's a company like ge realizing that they have more additive parts uh, made through additive manufacturing that anybody else in the world has. So why not get in the business, right? Why, why not get into a business that can make you more productive, that can drive in, incremental growth and can lead you in the future? That's horizontal innovation. And I'd say both of those are technically driven. I think exponential innovation is one that kind of marries technology with business model change and and that's what's really the hardest to do in a legacy company. Probably the best example I can come up with is, uh, you know, an old GE colleague is a guy named Joe Hogan. Joe runs a company called Align Tech. It takes out of manufacturing new materials and, and uh, makes aligners, right, for, uh, for instead of braces. And that company has, their, their market cap has grown tenfold in the last five or six years because it's exponential growth. It's exponential value. It's taking a, a manufacturing technology and a consumer need and helping them meet. And, and I think it's always good to keep your eyes open. I, I'm in a VC world now. I think about this a little bit, but even legacy companies have to kind of keep their eyes open for what are the things that are going to be exponential growth? You know, I talk in my business school class and the in the 2000s, uh, we owned NBC. Uh, we were actually launched Hulu when Netflix was just a like a, a VCR company, right? And, and you know, inside NBC, we were worried that the cable companies would get pissed off at us 
because streaming would hurt their business. And so we slowed down, right? And now, you know, Netflix is worth more than every media company combined because it was an exponential play. And, and we were too close to it to see the way it was really going to evolve as time goes on. So I think you need to keep your eyes open for what are the two exponential ideas that could happen in your space? You know, picking up on uh, what you're doing now, uh, venture partner at NEA, uh, teaching at Stanford, has that really changed the way you think about innovation? And uh, what are you learning as you go through? You know, it's a great, it's a, it's a long question. You know, Bill, I could, you and I could spend an entire dinner talking about this one just because I've learned uh, so much. I would say, and you you came from the Valley, I would say today in venture, there's an infinite amount of money. You know, it used to be venture capital could fund small ideas with small bets. But now, you know, there's nothing that can't be funded with venture capital. Like there's so much money that that you can build new material science companies, new hardware companies, new software companies. So the flood of talent and money and ideas is really uh, incredible in venture today. And I'd say that's changed even since, even since I've been here. You, you know, Bill, is just the, the ability to do things has never been greater. And then I just think there's something unique about the Valley and it's, it's willingness to accept failure, to accept experimentation that really makes it so such that uh, everybody should come and take a look at it. Now, now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of flaws. I think the whole kind of, um, look, it's hard to build things that last that people leave their jobs every 12 months. And, you know, if you, if you got to pay somebody three times more a year from now than what you paid them now, it's hard to build culture and all that stuff. So there's, you know, we have our challenges for sure, but there's a lot of exciting stuff that goes on. And then I think students, you know, I've probably taught now four or 500 students over the last, uh, let's say four or five years. I think they're like, they're children of crisis, you know, Bill, they've lived through, you know, a 30 year old have, has lived through COVID. They've lived through the financial crisis and probably half my students want to start their own company, not necessarily because they want to become billionaires or wealthy or all that stuff, mainly because they want control of their life, right? They don't trust us. They don't trust people like me to plan their destiny. They kind of say, at least I can depend on myself. I can build my own company on my own time and that's worth it. And so I, I really do think the next generation is very different from both a business and social standpoint, mainly because they've seen you know, really nothing but crisis over the last 10 or 15 years. And that shapes people. You know, uh, it sort of takes us into a little more of a leadership discussion, which is the other part of the book that's fascinating. Um, and, you know, in many ways, you face more challenges and than any other CEO I've ever seen. Um, starting on the second day of 9-11 and, and then going through a lot of changes. And you, you've messaged this and talked about the fact that the world's much more complex than it was in the 80s and 90s. And and I think that goes back to what you just talked about as to how students see it. They live through all this complexity. And so, you know, what? how did you deal with it? Because I believe leaders of the future are going to be faced with 
much more complicated challenges than the leaders of the 80s and 90s. And how do you think, how did you deal with some of those great challenges? I think some people are kind of like fear accelerators. Some people are fear absorbers. I think if you're going to lead in this in this era, you've got to be somebody that's willing to kind of not panic, take it on yourself to solve the problem, not make things worse. You know, it's it's just uh, you've you've got to absorb fear. You've got to make decisions. You know, Bill, it's just like you don't have a, a time or you don't have enough information or things like that. You've got to be willing to make decisions. You've got to hold two truths, really, at the same time, that, that things can always get worse, but there is going to be um, a future. You know, something that maybe some of the people in the audience would appreciate is in like 2002 or 2003, Boeing announced a new aircraft called the 767, the Dreamliner. And in theory, it was going to be able to fly from Sydney to New York City nonstop, right? And it was the absolute worst time to announce a plane like that. It was right after 9-11 and SARS, and it was really a crappy time. But it was a symbol that the industry was going to have a future and that people could participate. And that's, I think, another part of leadership. If, if I would look at COVID, what I would say is people only held one truth in COVID, Bill, and that's that things could get worse. And that's why we see supply chain issues and and uh, and things like that. So there's a couple of things that whether you're talking about the financial crisis or 9-11 that are key traits that leaders have over that time period. And then I, I'd say personally, you just have to be able to differentiate yourself between critical thinking and critics, right? You need critical thinkers around you who are people that are going to say, hey, look, Jeff, here's the way you have to think about things. Um, and, and think about it this way, and here's what we can do about it, and here's how to make it better. And I think in a crisis, you have to be willing to accept critical thinkers, but you've got to block out critics. People are saying you're doing a crappy job, you should be fired, you know, and, and you just can't listen to critics. You, you, you need to listen to critical thinkers. You can't listen to critics because most times they don't care, right? They're lazy they, they want to cover their ass and you have them both inside your company and outside your company and you have to be able to differentiate between the two. You know, you were ahead of your time in pushing eco-imagination. Um, look, today everybody talks about sustainability, uh, you know, zero, zero carbon emissions, you know, and you were doing, you were having that discussion over 20 years ago. Probably took a lot of uh, yeah, I had a lot of critics uh, at that time because they were, well, how do you make money? How do you, you know, take us through what got you into thinking about that? And what do you think about the future of sustainability? What do leaders have to think about? You know, it's a great question, Bill. I, I would say, you know, 20 years ago, what you could see in, in, in the environment was, I would say, changing attitudes, changing legislation. We could see it, you know, from refrigerators to turbines to aviation, that this was going to be something that had a long, let's say a long-term perspective. And we looked at the science. You know, I, I had people at the research center kind of study climate change, read the reports from Stanford and the UN and Columbia and 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 come we, we came to our own conclusions about warming and, and things like that. So 
you know, we were we were well grounded, I would say, in terms of where we started at that time. And this was maybe 2005. I, I think, Bill, where we are today is really interesting and challenging. I, I think there's now a global consensus that climate change is real, caused by man. We need to do something about it. We need to do something quickly. But people talk about energy transition. There actually needs to be a transition, you know. So if you look at if you look at like how power is generated, if you look at, you know, kind of the way most industries run, things like that, there's going to have to be transitional technologies like uh, sequestration, uh, building efficiency in your world. And I think people, governments in particular, are super naive about going from where we are today to 2050, but not understanding what we have to do in 2025 and 2030 and 2035. And that's going to create chaos. And so when I, when I look at like COP26, as much as there's consensus, there's little planning that, that goes with it. And I think that's going to create lots of bottlenecks and, and, and things like that. Australia, you know, I love Australia. I love the people. I love the country. I love going there. But, you know, it's got the worst energy policy of any country, mainly like any developed country in the world. And, you know, I, I used to show the board a fact that said, if you, if you took half the coal plants took them offline and replace it with natural gas. Just that step. You'd, re you'd reduce CO2 by 17% around the world. It's the single biggest thing you could do. Yet that wouldn't receive, that would be booed off stage, right? In any environment. So I think what I would urge all the people in the audience or business leaders is to think about the two or three practical steps you can take today to get on the path to, to avoid the fads and things like that. And really, really, you know, the world will, will, will be helped by making more changes quickly than thinking that every citizen in the U.S. is going to be driving electric vehicle by 2030, because that, that ain't going to happen, right? That is not going to happen. And that's, you know, so in many ways, we've made a ton of progress. And in many ways, I still think we're very naive about how what it's going to take to actually solve this existential problem you know if you if you build on that you've seen like and you've been a part of leading changes in aviation transportation energy healthcare um uh, look into the future what what are some of those changes that you're seeing now what are those things you look at and go there's some great opportunity in those areas that's where real change is coming in the future. These are the industries, I think, that are going to go through foundational change. You know, what, what are you thinking about these days? Yeah, look, I mean, in energy, there's just a lot of excitement today around certainly renewables. But I again, I go back to uh, what are some of the, you know, like, are there ways to detect methane remotely? to make gas pipelines more effective? You, you know, what are the technologies that are going to take current uh, industries and make them more effective? And then I would go, Bill, on the, on the other end of energy is what are the really foundational technologies, whether it's uh, batteries clearly are one, but things like fusion and things like that, that are actually at scale clean technology. So, 
in energy, I would go to the, the, the small things that can help legacy industries today all the way to what's really a, a 100% clean baseload technology uh, for the future. I think in aviation, I, I'm really compelled by some of the startup companies that are going back to, you know, kind of supersonic flight to see if there really is a way to make air travel effective at speed. And whether or not that works or can work economically, I think that is really a super interesting uh, concept. In, in um, healthcare, I mean, there's a thousand things I could talk about in healthcare, but the ability to take AI and data and actually drive superior outcomes, that has yet to happen in healthcare. And, and where can that industry go from a standpoint of leveraging really the new data tools? So, you know, the tech industry's impact on healthcare has been nothing so far. And, and yet, you know, if you think about the tech world bill that you came out of, it's transformed every other industry. So that's out there yet uh, for healthcare. And then I just think coming out of this incredible supply chain uh, uh, issue we have today globally, you know, what are some of the data tools that could route trucks and, and uh, ships and ports more effectively? You know, again, you look at this and just say, this is a 1950s logistics system in a global supply chain in a pandemic. You know, nobody can be surprised that we're having the kinds of problems we're having. So I think most of these industries, I guess the, the bottom line, and I, you know, you're smart about building. I don't really follow the building industry are still decades behind where they can be just from the use of technology, data, automation, and those basic technologies. You know, you're in the building industry, it, it is a dichotomy. It's, it's actually the property industry as a whole is the largest component of global GDP uh, if you add up everything that goes into it. Yet, um, it's the least digitized industry on the planet. And a lot of it is that uh, the it's very conservative, you know, the culture is one of take no risk or push risk to other people. Uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy to it. And quite honestly, the individually, the construction and developers, they don't always want to make that shift uh, because the, the question is who benefits? And in the end, maybe it's the landowner, so you don't make a change if you don't benefit on it. So. And you've seen all this, and you know. But the thing that's interesting, Jeff, is prop tech is now uh, the num number two area of investment globally by the venture community. So this has been a banner year, a lot of money going into. It. So we're starting to see that that shift, but it's very, very early, early on. Yeah, and I think though, you've lived it. So you're you're going to look not so much at the wild technology, but what are the outcomes that are going to come from it. And I think the one thing that's really, I think just a systemic change, it's just this labor shortage that we're going to have, certainly in the U.S. and some other countries around the world. And I think that's going to force, you know, that's going to force adoption of technologies. Look, there's just not going to be people that go around and check on apartments anymore. <laughs> no, there's just not going to be, you're not going to be able to count on construction crews and you know, I could go down the list. So I, I think a very profound labor shortage might be the kind of crisis that, that the property industry needs 
to actually start embracing uh, new technology. And that's not, that's not unusual. Typically, you need a crisis of some kind to really drive adoption uh, in a more profound way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what everybody kind of feels. Uh, or great competition coming out of left field that, that threatens your existence. Um, you know, you've, you have met all, all the world's great leaders, all the uh, business leaders, technology leaders, uh, politicians. And, you know, are there a few people you looked at and said, wow, I learned something or those were great leaders or what, what could you share about learnings and things you've seen and people you thought were outstanding leaders? You know, I've always, Bill, had a great love for founders who could scale. So I'd say my hero is like Fred Smith at FedEx, who, you know, started the company with six or seven planes. 40 years later, he's as engaged, as vibrant, as, as completely, you know, kind of focused on the future as he was 40 years ago, right? And so I think it's so hard to scale. When you find people that know how to do it, you have to just say it's great. Um, I just think the tech CEOs of this generation, you know, uh, uh, Bezos and, and uh you know, uh, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook, uh, the Google founders, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, you know, you just go up and down the coast. You just have to say they've been pretty amazing, right? The, the, the combination of speed and scale and learning and all that stuff, the, the value of an idea, you know, you just have to say uh, they've been uh, really great. Um, I've always had a real love for the Indian entrepreneurs. I've always had a real, both a personal relationship and, and kind of, a, you know, kind of a, um, you know, a respect, you know, reliance. Mukesh Ambani decides he's going to get in the cell phone business and two years later, he's the biggest in the world, right? We can't even get our head wrapped around you know, that kind of uh, speed and scale. And probably my favorite politician, I, and she just retired, but I always thought Angela Merkel was a really uh, good leader, you know, did a good job of kind of like being politically astute, but having a real beacon for doing the right thing. And, and, and I think that's rare. But, you know, the fun part about a job like the one I had is anybody would have lunch with you once. You know, it didn't matter. You had to earn the second time, but you, you had a chance to, to really learn from some really, uh, some really great people. Another person I throw on the list is Michael Dell. Michael's a friend and, and somebody that I worked with for a long time. And his ability, again, to kind of twist and turn and be flexible and change his business model, I think it's just something to be admired. You know, uh, I think it's interesting. A lot of people are talking about the conglomerate being dead. Yet, I go back to what you were talking about. The fact is the tech companies are all becoming conglomerates of the future. What, what do you think about this? Is it dead? Is it just changing? And uh, where, where does it go? You know, I, I'd say if you look at legacy companies, uh, multi-business structures where you have competitive advantage in three or four things, um, you know, that's not dead, really. I, I think... Um, you know, it should a company be in uh, insurance and media at the same time? 
I'd say that's too much, right? But being able to do aviation and power and healthcare, shared technology, shared global footprint, all those things, you know, I, I still think you can build a compelling uh, case for that. So I, I would say that's first and foremost. The second thing is a lot of these things are just banker themes, right? So becoming conglomerates, you know, these are fee machines for investment bankers. You know, breaking up GE into three pieces, that's probably four or five hundred million dollars of banker fees right there. You know, and 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 I, I look back and forth at businesses we've sold or kept. And, you know, at the end of the day, Bill, what it really comes down to is the way you and I started this conversation. If you have great products, you have great businesses. It, 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 and it, you can do that if you're focused. You can do that at scale if you're a conglomerate. But it comes down to... You know, if, if an independent uh, set of independent businesses, if they develop better products and more of them, they're going to be successful. But if uh, having the global research center and things like that help businesses have great products, they're not going to focus isn't going to matter. It's not going to be successful. And then, you know, getting to your question, you know, the the conglomerates of yesteryear were based on. I'd say processes and management science and stuff like that, that doesn't mean anything today, right? I, I think the conglomerates today are based on technology, innovation, technical scale, vision of technology. And I think those still have a long runway. So whether you're a legacy company or a startup, if your structure gives you the ability to make better products and services, you're going to be right. And if it doesn't help you, if the complexity doesn't deliver that or the focus doesn't deliver that, you're going to fail. doesn't matter what structure you're in. And I think that gets lost in all the, you know, gibberish of media coverage. It, it is true. It's just uh, innovation has to lead to a product. And if you got the right product with a business model, you can ride that and you're going to win. Big or small focused or conglomerate, you know, it's just, it's just that, that simple, you know, and, and if you go back like 20 years ago, you know, when I was growing up in G say, well, look, we all did Six Sigma, so it all makes sense. That doesn't mean shit today. You know, in other words, that, that all got left decades ago. Now it's products, services, customer value, globalization. Those are the things that matter. So how do you how do you think about in a few just final topics? How do you think about AI and machine learning these days? Do you think um, it, it you know we are, it's becoming real and data and you talked about that? But I think two issues. One is how do you think about it socially? Is it direction and how important is it to the innovations you're looking at today? Yeah, look, I think Bill, you know, you, you were early into this whole thing. I think AI has come further than I thought it would come. You know, I think when you and I started, we kind of thought that like having deep domain around an industry was a competitive barrier. Mm, I'm not so sure. I think now just being able to use data, being able to model effectively, you know, there's still, if you can, if you can add great data, great industry knowledge, you still have better but the advances in AI have been really profound. And so I, I just think no matter what business you're in, you've got to understand how that fits and where it can go and things like that. In terms of the, you know, it's, it's a hard, um, 
it's a hard thing to harness where science and technology goes. You, you know, we're at this end. We're, we're at this incredible moment in time, and I, I'll speak now in the U.S. because I, I know the data a little bit better. Where, you know, labor partition, uh, later labor participation rate is gone from 68% to 61% over the last, uh, let's say, 20 years. So we have a shortage of workers, yet we're worried about AI and automation creating a shortage, uh, an excess of jobs. So it's almost impossible to have the technical impact on jobs at the same time that participation rate is in an all-time low and we don't have enough workers. So how that all sorts out, I'm not, I'm not smart enough. But you know, every legacy player should understand the role that new technologies like AI are going to play in their industry and how quickly they're going to come because the technology is real. And is the next generation, uh, you know, from your teaching at Stanford, is the next generation of business leaders becoming tech technically savvy, or are we still keeping these domains separate? What do, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, Bill, there's, there's certainly more uh, tech accepting, right? There's certainly more, uh, uh, I think tech savvy is probably the right word. They, they, they think about things in the technical prism. I'd say what, where they're lacking today is they still don't understand domains like the one you're in, you know, the physical world. Like I'd say... I'd say we've gone to the digital world with our students and now they don't know anything about the physical world anymore. And that's going to be a gap. So I, I'd say we, we've yet to find the happy medium between the digital and the physical, which is really what the world's going to be about even in their lifetime in the next 30 or 40 years. No, I think that's right. And we, you and I saw that over the last decade. And even if you look at what's Elon Musk, he's he's a master of the physical and digital world simultaneously. That's that's where the future is, and and better outcomes. That's where the future is. Amazon the same way, you know. I think that's I think that's the, the and and that's what's that's what's missing. I would say right, and and so I think people that can do both, and that that's a lot of what we teach our class about is just the. The intersection between the the physical and the digital. So, what's next for Jeff? You still uh, you got any? You know, you're still doing the venture work. You're still doing the teaching. You're going to write another book. What, what what's next for Jeff? No more no more books. No, I had one book in me, but I would say I would say I I had a hypothesis when I retired that I would enjoy working with um, entrepreneurs, and that's been true. I, I've been I've loved it. I've enjoyed it. I've got ways to add value, which I wanted to do in the next phase of my life. And uh, it's been great fun, right? I, I do, I'd say, Bill, I do 50% healthcare and then the rest is a, a smattering of IoT and industrial automation and things like that. So it's all kind of, and I can work as hard as I want to, but I only work on the things that I really want to work on. And that's, uh, that's a joy. And then, you know, Bill, so look, in many ways, the two of us in like 2010, we kind of started thinking about digital transformation and we were too early, you know, and, and in some ways, in some ways we both got scars 
you know, because we were probably five or six years, but, you know, it is happening. And I kind of want to see how the world um, looks going in the future. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal a week or so ago, basically saying it was kind of an op-ed piece saying, you know, this is the end of the IT department, right? That basically when all people are really becoming digital savvy, you know, the reason for being of the classic IT department has ended, really. And that's true, kind of, you know, and I'd say all of those organizational changes and, and, and innovative changes are all still ahead of us on digital transformation. And I kind of want to see how it all plays through. Well, thank you, Jeff. This has been special. Very, always inspiring to me. It's great to see you, Jeff. Great to see you. I wish you nothing, nothing but success. Yeah, and I, I hope to get back to Australia someday when, when the world opens up again. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. I'd like to thank our guests, Bill and Jeff, and point out that all references for the show can be found on building4.0.org slash podcasts. Until next time on the Future Building Podcast.